Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We've been looking at different ways of treating those who are mentally ill, and now there is a movement in Alberta to push forward the involuntary treatment of those who are addicted. And this was not always so. There was kind of a revolution here in Canada a few decades ago that shuttered a lot of facilities that had mandatory treatment of addiction and mental illness. And we promised something better, something more dignified. And now look at how we are watching and seeing homelessness and and specifically addiction affecting all the top headlines we're worried about. We have tent cities. We have post-pandemic, a lack of treatment. We've seen our healthcare facilities just nailed to the wall with a deluge of people. And now we're looking at different ways. Is there a new way to approach this? And the controversy that is tied into the history, is there a revelation in these times that may make us see a pathway? Is it cruel or is it helpful? Joining me is Keith Humphreys, Professor of Psychiatry at Stanford University. Good afternoon, Keith. Thank you for joining me. Really glad to be here. Keith, let me ask you, you know, the history of this, why is it important? Because we're looking at doing it more and more these days, and it was, uh, was just the way it was done a few decades ago. Yeah, that's a very important uh, point to raise. I mean, it, particularly when you look at the experience mainly of people with serious mental illnesses, uh, you know, there was an era where they would be taken away against their will and put in pretty horrible institutions where they were treated badly and, and there was no one sort of minding the store and making sure that they were getting quality care. And, you know, that's something that can happen whenever the state has enormous power um, o- over people who have uh, serious illnesses. So you certainly don't want to go back to that. Um, neither, though, do we want to say that, therefore, it should be a free-for-all, and if someone is got an illness or got an addiction and they're doing great harm to themselves or to their uh, families or to their communities, that we should do nothing because of that previous bad experience. There has to be some smart policy between those two extremes. We're debating it anew here in Canada. What about in America? What are What are the laws there here? So we've long had uh, what are called drug courts, and there are some drug courts in Canada. I think there's many more in the United States. And what that is, is somebody who um, is repeatedly, let's say, uh, is, is engaging in theft or property destruction or other kinds of behaviors or drug dealing. And, and the judgment of the criminal justice system is it's driven by their addiction. And so the system will say, look, you know, normally you would go to jail for these crimes, but um, you, you have an alternative, which is you can stay in a community, but you're going to be supervised pretty closely by a judge and you're going to get access to treatment and you're going to access to services and you're going to be regularly trusted for drugs. So it's it's not a free ride. It's an awful lot of monitoring. But if you make it through, um, you can avoid your uh, sentence in your incarceration. And often also you can get your record expunged. And, you know, the evidence on those is that, you know, people who go through that experience on average, you know, are less likely to end up in prison again. They're more likely to get into recovery and and their families are better off. So that that's, uh, uh, you know, a case for the, the idea that sometimes it is good um, to, to intervene in, in, in a way that is, you know, you're putting pressure on people. They may not want to do it, but you're saying, look, you, 
it, it's a choice between continuing doing what you're doing and, and, and going into jail. So, um, you know, this is a time to change your behavior. I want to get back to that, but I, I want to ask you, is it controversial in America now? Uh, I think it's less so con- than it is in Canada. Just observe oh, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I am American, yeah. but I've been spending time uh-huh. in Canada. I think, there, I think there's a bit more controversy in Canada at the moment. Um, but, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, a lot of interest, uh, you know, at, at this point. We have, we have many people in prison. There's a lot of people, and I'm one of them, who, who want to do anything they can to keep people out of prison if possible. And this is a way to do that, a way to, you know, deflect them from that system. Um, while at the same time honoring the public's quite understandable uh, wish to be safe. Um, so that's why you don't just, you know, let people go and hope for the best, but you, you monitor them carefully, provide them services, and make sure they're on a good path. You know, um, now there are, even in, there's some surprising bedfellows in this, uh, politicians who would lean to the left, uh, like in our province of B.C., are, are moving forward on this and saying not to do it is cruel. From your, from your experience, have, have you seen that side of this? Have you seen the goodness of it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is unpredictable, I think, who, um, where people come down on this. And I think oftentimes there's a lot to do with biographical experiences. So, you know, I certainly, uh, you know, people who would say, you know, I never, you know, pe- people who use drugs and alcohol should never be pressured in any way. It's their own bodily autonomy. And then all of a sudden their kid is in that situation and they realize mm-hmm. oh, it's more complicated than that. You know, so that, that makes a difference. It's also true that um, very few people actually believe uh, that there's never a time for involuntary uh, intervention. And, and the example I would give for that is, you know, I, I, I work in or volunteer in a neighborhood called the Tenderloin, has a lot of drug problems. I carry an overdose rescue drug called naloxone. If someone, you know, is unconscious from an opioid overdose, I can give them naloxone and bring them back. I've never had anyone say, well, you shouldn't do that because they can't consent. Mm-hmm. They're unconscious. Mm-hmm. Everyone goes, well, no, they're going to die. You, you, it, it, this is not a time to be filling out forms. This is a time to save a life. And so I think just whatever it concedes that point that sometimes human beings are not in a state where they can make decisions uh, that will save their life and we have to act for them. So it's just a question of how broadly do you extend that principle? You, If you apply it there, are you willing to apply it to somebody who's standing in a busy intersection, high on methamphetamine and about to get hit by a car? Would you would you go out there and get them or get a cop to do it? Um, someone's being violent, you know, and at some point, you know, there's a split where people say, well, that, you know, let's say they're just making a nuisance of themselves, not being an immediate threat, then I would, you know, people start to disagree. But I think at the extreme end, actually, there's a lot of agreement about this across political views. How does it look? How does it happen? I mean, are there families that that turn people in? I, I don't know what the phrase is, the correct yeah, phrase yeah. is, but it, yeah. is it just the courts or a, the crisis yeah. happens? There's a whole range of things. I mean, you know, some of the Albertan officials have come out and explained, you know, they, they've been influenced by the Portuguese system, which is um, they have something called a dissuasion uh, a committee. And if somebody, let's say, is, you know, repeatedly caught with drugs or engaging in petty crimes are brought before it. It's an, you know, they, they get a formal medical assessment. The goal is to help them. Uh, and that, that commission uh, can say, you know, well, we, we think this is just a one-time thing. You, you know, go and be well, or we think you have a drug problem. We want to go into treatment and it's allowed to put some pressure on them. It can find people, you know, it can, it can bar them from certain activities. You know, let's say they've got a drug problem. It says you, you can't keep working as a cab driver until you straighten this out, but they don't throw people in jail. Um, they don't, 
it uh, put really harsh punishments on people. And my understanding is that that's not what the Albertans want to do um, either. Um, the, the cases where you would get to that more extreme end would be things where they're acutely dangerous, like somebody gets drunk, uh, you know, every other night and physically beats up his family or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. that, 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 in that case, you need more than a nudge. You need to intervene to protect the lives of the family because they have, you know, they have value. They're human beings. They have rights too. where it may come a situation where, look, you, you need to change your behavior or you will, in fact, go to jail or or we are going to put a bracelet on you that monitors your alcohol use. And if you drink again, there will be a criminal justice consequence. It really depends on the situation, what it looks like. I think most people, most of the time, it's going to stop short of extreme penalties, except in cases where there's an imminent risk of um, uh, death. I mean, by, by someone else or, or the person themselves. Keith, I want to ask you, does it work? Have you seen success stories here? Have you seen those who, as you say, couldn't make the decision? It was made for them or there was that carrot instead of the stick and their lives turn around. Yeah, that's a great question. So it's certainly true. Addiction is a very serious disorder. And, uh, some, you know, sometimes nothing works. I mean, you know, you know, a mandated treatment, voluntary treatment, change in life circumstances and all that. So I don't want to make it sound like it's a simple um, but absolutely, if you talk to people in recovery, it is remarkable how common it is that recovery was started by pressure from outside. Uh, you know, it might have been the, the spouse who says either sober up or get out or the, or the employer who says, if you come to work high one more time, you're fired. Or the doctor who says you keep living this way, you will be dead soon. Or the police officer who says, if I arrest you one more time, I'm going to throw you in jail. You need to you need to change your ways. And at the time, it almost always made the person really angry. Um, but uh, in retrospect, when they're in recovery and their life is doing well, then they feel gratitude. Uh, and so you can't always tell your immediate, the people's immediate reaction of being constrained uh, doesn't mean that they're not on a good path. Because in the long term, once they get in recovery, um, they get a new perspective on things, realize how much better life can be than they saw at the time, and they actually appreciate having had that pressure put on them. You know, one of the areas and the criteria we can judge it is how do they do when they're out? And this has been part of the criticism, you know, um, if people there against their will. And it isn't really is the way you describe it. It's just, I guess, the impetus comes from another spot. But when they're discharged, do you have any stats? Do you have any observations on whether or not it, it's tough, as you say, to stick to it, no matter how you got into treatment? But is there anything that would illustrate whether this works or not when they're discharged? Yeah. So one of the things for you helpful to know is that it's not always going to be uh, a residential kind of setting, you know, so where someone mm -hmm. goes away like they might if they were sent to a correctional facility and then comes out. Um, those kinds of treatments, uh, you know, don't actually have a particularly great success rate. M you know, you need sometimes the stability of a residential component to, you know, for detoxification, for uh, physical safety, if someone's homeless, just so they can, you know, show up day to day and participate in treatment. But it for good care would be part of a, a like a step down process. So you would have, you know, some moments in residential, but then you would still be in touch. You would be getting outpatient services for a very long period, just like you would if you had a heart attack or you had cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the treatments that have a bad reputation deserve it are the kind of thing, send somebody away for 28 days, sort of blast them with mm -hmm. a lot of therapy and then send them right back where they were and hope everything works out. Um, that doesn't have a very good record of success.
You know, all these calls mention the follow-up, as you say, intensive treatment. So, in a in a in a strange way, this this idea, which to some is controversial, is almost the same as the alternative, isn't it? There's great calls for an intense follow-up here, and that this only works and is only as good as what you do after. Would you agree? Yeah, that's right. And you know, and you are. You know, even in, in, you know, in treatment, when you tell people this is what's needed, this is what's required, you know, sometimes people will disagree then and you have to persuade them of it. Um, and uh, that's that's part of, uh, you know, building trust, but also the person being willing to surrender in some sense to the process uh, and admit that they don't fully know what's needed, because if they did, they would not still be in the situation they're in. Were we wrong before? Many would get down to politics, and we know that's loud these days. But there are those who say this was a giant mistake, this experiment, and it it caused a lot of the modern ills. Would you agree? Was it wrong to shutter those facilities? Um, you, you know, it, it, some of them were horrible. You know, so um, and and there were times that it was entirely defensible. You know, we had, you know, I certainly know in the U.S. we had horrible scandals in some. They were, you know, they were, you know, people were living in squalor. The care was abusive and all that sort of thing. It was good to get get rid of them. Um, the the challenge we had in a lot of the country was once that was done, nothing was built to replace it. Nothing more humane. You know, a, a decent care system that had, um, you know, residential actual care as opposed to sort of distant warehouses, places closer to the community and a lot of follow-up and so on. Sometimes politically, you can get the constituencies together to get rid of something, but then those constituencies don't stay together to build something new and better. And that's what happened with with, uh, us in the United States. Yeah, you know, we're rethinking so many things. How much does our current situation go into this this going back here? Because we look, it's not in a silo, mental illness or addiction. It's kind of affecting just about everything, even those who want to turn away. You can't really turn away right now, Keith, can you? That's right. That's right. It's very hard. You know, name any social problem that troubles us. Um, you know, um, not just homelessness or, or crime, but other ones like, um, uh, you know, quality of life for children, uh, education, health, mental health, housing, uh, infectious disease. In almost every case, you you will find uh, there's an addiction component to it. Not all of it, but it's it's part of what one deals with. So there's really no way, you know, to sort of depend, pretend that addiction will go away on its own and stop affecting us and stuff stop doing harm to society. It's always going to do that unless we do something about it. I want to ask you, um, finally, just to put this in the context of the end of the war on drugs, psychedelics being used for therapy. I mean, heck, uh, we've got psychedelics being offered for therapy for other kinds of addictions now. Are we into a are we into some kind of an awakening here in our view of drugs, especially in your business? Yeah, good question. I mean, psychedelic drugs currently we're, we're early in the hype cycle, so awful lot of huge promises are being made, and most of them are not going to be true. Um, the good thing is there are some really serious scientists doing very careful research on those psychedelic drugs, and it's possible some of them could have, you know, genuine therapeutic effects for conditions, for example, like depression, uh, maybe for addiction. And if so, I'm I'm confident they'll sort it out. But the the rest of us have to be patient and not give in to the hype because there's a lot of hype and false promises. When, and if we believe that, you can actually end up, you know, harming yourself or harming someone else. 
If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 